Turn your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 2. This is page 2082. Your Bible probably automatically opens there now. And we are going to look at one of the most important events in the history of the world. Certainly one of the most important events, second only to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ uh, in the Christian's life. And we're going to look at something that's often vastly misunderstood and misapplied by Christians. Some Christians try to ignore this chapter in their lives, and uh, very, very futilely, I shall say. And it's very important for us to take a solid look at this chapter and bring it into the experience of our lives. There are really, as I've said to you in years past, two key mysteries that provide the foundation for the Christian life. You want to know how to live the Christian life, how to live it successfully. Two major mysteries. The first one is the mystery of substitutionary atonement. That is that you're made one with God through another substituting himself in your place to die for your sins and to provide for you a righteousness that you never earned for yourself. That's a mystery. It sounds like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. It's just too good to be true, but it's real. It happened. It's, all, it's made available to anyone who will hear and believe. That's the first big mystery, the mystery of substitutionary atonement. But the second mystery is the mystery of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the mystery of God living his life in the souls of men. That's a mystery. Once again, it sounds too good to be true. You can't prove it scientifically, but I think you can prove it experientially. We'll get into that. But without that mystery, you can't live the Christian life. Without either one of those mysteries, you can't live it. So your whole Christian life needs to be based on those two big mysteries. And the one we're going to look at today, obviously, primarily, is the infilling of the Spirit, the experience of the Spirit of God in your life. And uh, we'll see how it has radically changed those whose lives first experienced it in a powerful way. Look at Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Which is, of course, to say, if it had been about the ninth hour of the day, maybe so. Um, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. 
and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may now not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Wow. Now, let's look for just a moment. If you read Stott's uh, section on this, you will remember this overview that he gave, that as you look at Acts 2, you really see three major components. The first is the event of Pentecost. What actually happened on that day, 50 days after the Passover, verses 1 through 11. And then in the major section we just read, you get the explanation of Pentecost. So you have the actual event, and then you get the interpretation, the explanation of what that event means. And this is typical, isn't it, in all of biblical revelation. The Bible gives us historical events, but it is far more than a mere history book. The Bible gives you the historical event, and then the Bible gives you the explanation of that historical event. What did it mean that Sinai shook with fire and smoke? Well, because God himself was revealing his law on Sinai to his servant Moses. So you get the event and then you get the explanation. Same way with the cross and the resurrection. You you get Jesus dying on a cross, but what does that mean? It's just one more dead Jew as far as the history books are concerned. But as far as God is concerned, and as he reveals it in his word, that was his own son who died a substitutionary atonement. So you get the theological reflection or the theological interpretation of the event. And the same would be true of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. It means that God accepted that substitutionary atonement on our behalf. He approves of it. Furthermore, it means that he brings back to life everyone who's in his son. So just as he was raised, we're going to be raised. You see what I mean? So you get these historical events and then the interpretation. Same thing at Pentecost. We have this phenomenal event that obviously arrests everybody's attention. Well, what does it mean? Peter gives the meaning, and we'll see the two major components of that meaning in just a few moments. 
And then thirdly, Stott, Stott shows us in his outline, you get then the effect of Pentecost. And next week, we'll look at one of the key effects. We get one of the effects in the text we just read. The effect of Pentecost is to convict people and to lead them to Christ. We'll see that. But then the great effect of Pentecost is the creation of the, of the New Testament church, the multicultural, multi-ethnic, international church. That's the great effect of Pentecost. Now, let's begin to look then at verses, two, uh, verses 1 through 11, which is the event of Pentecost. And let's see what this event is. And we see primarily what it is. The Holy Spirit has come. Duh. The Holy Spirit has come. Now, this is vital because oftentimes we, we tend to think of the Spirit uh, just being a New Testament concept. But obviously, no one in the Old Testament would be saved without God the Spirit converting them, giving them new life. We know that from what the Bible teaches us, that we must have the Spirit in order to replace our dead hearts, our wicked, rebellious hearts, with soft hearts for God. So the Spirit obviously was regenerating people in the Old Testament. But what we see in the New Testament is an entirely new scope of His activity in our lives. And the Spirit, uh, who dwelt primarily in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament, now comes out and dwells in His temple, which is His people. You know, we're taught by Peter in First Peter chapter 2 that we're the living stones of the temple. So we're the temple. And the Spirit now has just come and filled the temple anew, but in this case, the temple is human beings. Now, what happens to us in the New Testament is that we move from minority status to majority status. We move from someone who's underage to someone who has come to a full adulthood. It's kind of like you were riding with training wheels. Now, the training wheels are off and you're on your own bike. Uh, you're guiding yourself and no one's there with, with you but God himself. So we reach adulthood now in the, in, the, in the New Testament, and that means now the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. Now, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to your salvation. You can't be persuaded of the gospel apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And if you're sitting in your chair this morning and you know that you're trusting in Jesus Christ, there's only one reason you're doing that. It's because the Spirit has convinced you. Now, that doesn't mean that He's convinced you of something that's irrational. No, he's convinced you of something that's transrational. We just said these are great mysteries and you've been convinced of them. If you're sitting in your chair and you do not yet believe in the gospel, you need the spirit to come inside your life and persuade you of this. Let me tell you what else the spirit does. The spirit actually enables us to pray. Paul said that when the prayers that we need to pray are so deep, all we can do is grunt. Some of you are pretty good at grunting. Yeah. But when in your prayers, all you can do is grunt and groan, sometimes in pain and agony and confusion and perplexity, the Spirit groans with us, uh, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. So the Spirit enables us to talk to the Father. The Spirit primarily is conforming us to the likeness of Christ. That's His task. And although it's very dramatic in this text, uh, some uh, folks have called uh, the Holy Spirit, the shy member of the Trinity, because the Spirit is always bringing glory to the Father and the Son. And we'll see that even in this text today, even in this great dramatic uh, presence of the Spirit. But the Spirit is the one, the third person of the Trinity, takes up residence in the temple in our very lives and conforms us increasingly to be like Jesus Christ. That's the Spirit's great work. Now, that's the reason that he is necessary. That's the reason that this infilling is so powerful for the church. The Holy Spirit has come. Notice, first of all, verse 1, he came at Pentecost. Well, what's the meaning of that? What is Pentecost? The word Pentecost just comes from the word 50, pente. And this is a Jewish feast that you'll find in your Pentateuch. In Leviticus uh, chapter 23, I've listed there. There are three great festivals where every male over the age of 12 was required to go to Jerusalem every year. The first one was the Feast of Passover. And then 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover, or rather seven weeks after the Sabbath of Passover, there was to be the Feast of, of, of Weeks, or, uh, Feast of Weeks. 
And that's what Pentecost was. So after those weeks, there was a harvest, and we would bring that harvest back uh, to Jerusalem. Then, of course, you had the Feast of Tabernacles later on in the fall to experience the harvest there. The Feast of Tabernacles, remember, was when the, the men and their sons would come to Jerusalem and live in booths, kind of like camping out for a week. And why? It wasn't Boy Scout camp. It was a time to remember that God had taken us through the wilderness in booths, and he had preserved us. Passover, of course, the first of the festivals in the spring, you know, reminded us of when the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and the death angel passed over them because they put the blood of the lamb on the lintels of their doors. And, of course, Jesus beautifully fulfills Passover. The Feast of Weeks became a traditional uh, gathering when they remembered Sinai. So at Pentecost, uh, the Jewish folks would gather and remember the giving of the law at Sinai. God came down to us at Sinai. Sinai shook with fire and wind, and there was a voice at Sinai. All these things, they're ready, they're celebrating the giving of the law, the Torah. And it's at that festival that the Holy Spirit shows up and surprises them with a little bit more than they were expecting. Now, and that's often true with the Spirit, isn't it? He gives you more than you're expecting. And then notice, secondly, verses 2 through 11, he not only came at this special festival day, but he came with power. And suddenly there came from heaven. The Holy Spirit came from heaven. How did he come? First of all, wind. A sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. Jesus spoke of the Spirit as the wind. And when he spoke of needing to be born again by the Spirit, he said, the Spirit is like the wind. You need to know where it comes from or where it's going. It blows as it will. And so it is with the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit just like you can't see the wind. But you can sure feel the effects of the wind. Just ask the people in Missouri and Tuscaloosa if they felt the effects of the wind. You better believe you can feel it. And they felt it. It was a powerful effect. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you begin to bend over just like the trees do. And you're bowing down to the Lord. And you're being energized for His service. Secondly, in verse 3, we see that He came with fire and divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. So tongues of fire, which represents, of course, you know, as John the Baptist has said, I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with fire. And they are baptized with the fire of tongues. That means they're going to be able to speak the Word of God. And fire itself is representative of God. Remember Moses in the burning bush. He saw the bush on fire. Why? Because of the presence of the living God. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 speaks of God as awesome, as a consuming fire. God was showing up. Thirdly, notice that the Spirit came to fill. There was wind, there was fire, and there was filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've listed several verses here, and here's why. In Oswald Sanders' book, which I recommend to you if you've not read it, called Spiritual Leadership, it's, one of, it's probably the best little book on distinctively Christian leadership I've ever read, Oswald Sanders' Spiritual Leadership. In that book, he gives many traits that are essential for effective leadership. For example, vision, uh, patience, wisdom, discipline, courage, anger, uh, many other essential traits of leadership. But then he has a whole chapter on what he calls the indispensable element of Christian leadership. And the indispensable element of Christian leadership is being filled with the Spirit. And Sanders says this, you cannot do the work of the spiritual life. You cannot carry out the mission of Jesus Christ without the infilling of the Spirit. And the disciples, of course, discovered this in a phenomenal way. You can compare their performance before Pentecost with their performance after Pentecost, and you get the story. So this is the indispensable element. And then Sanders points to the book of Acts. And he says, it's obvious, isn't it, that everyone who went out and was effective in the service of the Lord had the infilling of the Spirit. I'm going to list these verses just so you would notice 
Certainly when Peter in chapter 4 stands before the Sanhedrin, I remind you, Peter, the one who was so cowardly that a little maid asked him if he knew the Lord and he said, I never knew the man and then cursed himself in, in saying that he never knew who the man was. That's Peter. Now we have Peter, unlearned Peter, standing before a combination of the Harvard faculty and the Supreme Court, uh, which is what the Sanhedrin would be. He was standing before them boldly testifying to the reality of Jesus Christ. I call that a dramatic change. And we are told he was filled with the Spirit. That's mentioned specifically in chapter 4. If you look in chapter 6 and the qualification of deacons, what is the qualification? They must be men filled with the Spirit. So even the men who count the money, who handle the logistics, the men who handle our facilities, the men who do the work of compassion and mercy in our churches, those men must be filled with the Spirit. If you turn to chapter 8, you'll see Philip ministering in Samaria. How does he do that? He's led by the Spirit. If you look in chapter 9, Paul at his conversion is told by Ananias, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then, of course, you see the ministry of Paul as he is filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 13. In chapter 11, you get Barnabas, one of the only two men in the Bible who's called a good man. And what are you told about Barnabas? He's full of the Spirit, which makes sense because only God is good, says Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be good, then you must have the infilling of God himself. And that's exactly what Barnabas had. He had the infilling of the Spirit, and that's what enabled his life, his character, and his ministry. And then you have, of course, eminently chapter 10, verse 38, where we're told about Jesus Christ himself. He was a man who had the Spirit beyond measure. So Jesus was enjoying the life of the Spirit in his life. It's phenomenal. And he's giving that same life to us. So our task is not just to take the work of Christ for us, but to take the work of Christ in us by the Spirit. So if we've received the benefits of what he's done on Calvary's cross and the empty tomb, we take the power of Christ living personally through us, and we depend upon him completely. This is how you live the Christian life. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You say, well, can we just pause a moment, Wilson? If I need the Spirit, could you please tell me how to get him into my life? I'm glad you asked. You take in God, the Holy Spirit, really in the same way that you take in the benefits of Christ on the cross. And what are we told to do if you want to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Repent and believe, or believe and repent. It's the same way here. You want to take in the Spirit? Trust Him. You know, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't just assent to the historical reality of Christ. You don't just assent to the theological assertions of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed about Christ. No, you actually depend upon Him. You lean upon Him. You trust Him. Same way with the Spirit. You not only believe the event of Pentecost, you not only believe that it's available today, you actually trust Him. You lean on Him. You depend upon Him. You cast yourself upon Him and you say to the Spirit, Spirit, I can't do this. I can't be the husband you want me to be. I can't be a patient father. I can't forgive the person who defrauded me. I can't do these things that you command in the Bible unless you come and do it through me. You cast yourself completely on His mercy. And the mistake that so many men make who are out there doing fantastic things in the world, and you can do without the Spirit's help, fantastic things in the world. You make a lot of money. You can make a big name for yourself. You can drive a fancy car, travel the world without the Spirit living in you. But let me tell you what you can't do. You can't live the Christian life. It's impossible without the Spirit doing it through you. And so many men will take the same thing that they think is working out there and they try to get it to work in here in the spiritual life and it ain't going to work. Your executive talents are not going to get you to sanctification. You have to cast yourself upon His mercy. You have to humble yourself and say, I'm going to depend upon you now. I'm going to hand it over to you. So then when your wife says something to you that really ticks you off and you're getting ready just to blast her and put her right back in her place, you just look to the Spirit and say, Spirit, help me. Spirit, this is out of my control. You want to know what I'm going to do if you leave me to myself? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to one-up her. But Holy Spirit, if you'll, you don't have time for all this, but you're thinking all this. And by the way, 
This is the reason it's helpful to count to 10. The pagan counts to 10. The Christian uses 10 seconds to pray. And you're saying, Holy Spirit, give me the words for this. Give me the words for this situation because I don't have them. And sometimes you know what he'll do? He'll just completely shut your mouth. (laughs) Try that one sometime. She'll be amazed. And you're asking, you're actually consciously asking. Those of you who teach Sunday school, when you're on the way to the lectern, do you just say, Holy Spirit, take me and use me? When you're preparing your lesson, you say, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see what, what you would teach your people today. Do you do that as you lead your small group? Do you do that as you lead family devotions? Holy Spirit, take hold of us. And I can't convince these kids that this is reality. I can't convince them to love this and want to walk with you. Holy Spirit, take hold of this family. I can't do it. You cast yourself on your mercy, on his mercy. That's what it means to trust him. Secondly, we repent. And, you know, Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and said, How do I inherit eternal life? How do I kind of stand in the way and get this stuff? Is it kind of like the way I got all my money? How do I inherit this? And Jesus said, well, keep all the commandments. He said, well, I've done those since my youth. (laughs) This man actually thought he was good. He had a God. And his God was not in heaven. His God was in his own sandals. It was himself. And in order to receive Christ, Christ let him go. Christ said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy hung his head and walked off. Jesus didn't go chase him and say, hold on, you make, a, you make a really good Presbyterian because you got a lot of money. Hang on, come on, we'll cut a new deal for you. We'll cut a different deal for you. I mean, you're, you're rich and wealthy. You've got a place in this community. We'll change the rules for you. He didn't do that. He waited for the man to come back. And I believe one day he did. Uh, but that's speculative. But you see what I'm saying? Jesus Christ was saying you've got to let go of everything that would replace Jesus Christ. And the same way with the Spirit. You have to let go of the things that would replace the life of the Spirit. We all know how to use power. If you're good looking, there are a few of you maybe, you can use your good looks. If you've got money, you'll use your money. If you've got friends, you'll use the political power of your friends. If you've got education, you'll use your knowledge. All of us know how to use our power. We're all looking for some power that helps us get control of our lives. We do that naturally. No one has to teach you how to do that. If you've got physical strength, you'll intend to want to intimidate people with your tremendous biceps. I mean, no matter who you are, you're going to find something that gives you a kind of a power. Well, let me tell you how, how that works with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen him do this with many, many men. You must let go of those forms of power as your primary means of power. And then you can embrace the power of the Spirit. It's these other powers that you lean on and use as your ultimate power that keeps you from experiencing the power of the Spirit. I've seen some men who are tremendous weightlifters, and when they come to Christ, they're like little teddy bears. You ever seen that? I've seen men who are very wealthy. When they come to Jesus Christ, they love the poor. I've seen men who have tremendous popularity, tremendous political power, but when they come to Christ, they're concerned about justice and righteousness, not about the promotion of their name or the re-election campaign. I've seen it happen over and over again. And what it involves is repentance from these other forms of power. If you want to know what's screwing up Memphis, it's men using secondary forms of power to try to accomplish the ultimate end of putting themselves at the top. That's what's wrong. And what happens when God gets a hold of the people with this power, this power is to elevate people, all people, as we'll see here in a moment, to lift them up so that they're enjoying the life of Christ and the festival banquet of, uh, that he provides. That's the power of God. So it involves trusting him and renouncing other powers as your primary source of strength and power. Otherwise, you cannot live this life just like the rich young ruler who was depending upon his strength I'm, I'm sorry depending upon his wealth you cannot come to christ and neither can you receive the power of the spirit if you're wanting to make these other forms of power your ultimate means of accomplishing the ends you have in mind so believe and repent and thirdly and this just kind of combines both of them 
ask. You know, uh, some of you have come to Christ, and when you came to Christ, someone said, look, let me just help you with this prayer. Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner, and I believe that you died on the cross for sinners. Would you please forgive my sins? Would you please take the precious blood that was poured out by Jesus Christ and apply that to my life and wash away my sins? Lord Jesus, you lived the perfect life. Would you please give me the credit for that? These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You just simply ask him, what were you told? You know what? If you ask sincerely, he will answer you. God's not in heaven waiting for the perfect prayer with no split infinitives and no dangling participles. And he's not waiting for you to pray like the bishop. He just wants a man who knows how to ask, who really wants the benefits that he offers in Christ. The same thing with the Spirit. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, ask, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And he said, you know, if you as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, Luke, the author of Acts, in his gospel account, he says, Jesus said this again on another occasion, and here's how he put it. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks will receive, and so on. And then he says, if you as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke is saying, I remember hearing that Jesus said that. Jesus was speaking of the Spirit. If you want rivers of living water flowing out of your breast, if you want the life of the Spirit, just ask Him. He is not an Indian giver, and neither is He a chintzy giver. He's a liberal giver to anyone who wants the life of the Spirit. So would you just ask Him in the same way that you asked Jesus? Say, Holy Spirit, would you please come? On, on my day of Pentecost, would you come and baptize me? Would you come and fill me? Would you come and live your life through me and make yourself consciously available to the life of the Holy Spirit? Now, some guys get a little worried. So what happens when you get out of control? I mean, I'm an Episcopalian. Uh, does this mean I'm going to go to church and go... Uh, I mean... That's not the way we do it in the Episcopal Church. You know, we're, we, we sit in straight lines and we go up in an orderly fashion and when we're filled with the Spirit, we smile. Uh, and let, let me tell you, I, I think that you're relatively safe, but not completely. Uh, when I look at men who are filled with the Spirit, I see all different kinds of personalities. I see all different kinds of cultures where the life of the Spirit is powerfully lived out. And I see it with Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Baptists, and Pentecostals. And they all express it differently. But it's the same power of God. Here's where you're not so safe. That the Holy Spirit will lead you joyfully to make certain sacrifices that you wouldn't have made apart from the Spirit. And all you need to do is just read the history of revival. And you'll see in revivals that we empty ourselves for the glory of God to worship Him and serve Him. So that's not safe. But in terms of personality, I think a lot of guys get a little worried, what's going to happen to me if I let the Spirit take over me? Let me tell you what will happen to you. The best thing to ever happen in your life. A life that you couldn't have imagined that God will give you when you turn your life over to Him. So there's filling. They were all filled. They didn't just hear the wind. They didn't just... Feel, feel the wind. They took in the wind. Then fourthly, notice tongues. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You say, now that one really worries me. You know, if I give myself to the Spirit, am I going to start speaking in tongues? Well, I don't know. Maybe so. Um, here in these tongues especially, we know that they were foreign languages. Languages that, are, that were known in the world. When you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it looks as though there may be a prayer language that might not be a known tongue because Paul speaks of the language of men and of angels. 
So some of you, uh, no doubt, in this room have prayed in tongues. Uh, uh, someone asked me one time whether I've prayed in tongues. I said, sure. Uh, I think people think I'm praying in tongues a lot of times. They can't understand my prayers. Uh, and there are different ways of praying. And certainly people, you don't have to understand my prayers when I'm in my prayer closet. I can pray however I want to, and God understands. He knows my heart. But the point the apostle makes in 1 Corinthians is that when we're in public worship, everything has to be interpreted. Everything has to make sense. That even if there were tongues that were not a known language, someone has to be there who understands that tongue. So Paul regulates that language should be in the known tongue of the people. Now, in or there should be interpretation. It wouldn't help if, if I had Dan Burns arise on Sunday morning and preach to us in Russian. There'd be very few of you who'd understand what he's saying and would say, that's not appropriate. We need to have it in English or some other language that we might understand, like Spanish. So we would have an interpreter if someone were to preach in Russian. The same way in 1 Corinthians 14. Now here in this case, this was the language of the people. That's the whole point. That when the Spirit takes over us, He is going to speak through us to all the nations. And they were astonished at this. We'll see that in a moment. Now, notice this. First of all, they're speaking to the nations. And just as you have the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, here you have the table of nations that were surrounding Jerusalem. All these Jews in the diaspora, the Jewish dispersion, and all across that part of the world came for these festivals. And you can see that all the nations are being listed in a certain way. Just say they're all gathered here. The life of the Spirit is for all people, all ethnic groups, all languages, the entire world. And the Great Commission, it was given to a bunch of Galilean fishermen, for heaven's sakes. How in the world are they going to take the gospel to places that don't understand Hebrew or Aramaic? Well, the life of the Spirit, that's how. He'll give us the ability as we need it. And then secondly, it was in their own languages. And here what you have, the reason I list Genesis 11, 8, and 9, is because what's happening is the Tower of Babel phenomenon is being reversed. When the people were worshiping their God themselves and building a tower to prove their own glory in Babel in Genesis 11... God confused their languages, their tongues, so they couldn't understand each other and they couldn't build anymore and the project was, uh, was scuttled. And they went their way with different languages as a judgment of God. Here in Pentecost, he's bringing them back together again. Here you have the reverse of the curse, the reverse of the disparity among people. He's bringing us together in unity. Thirdly, what did they talk about? Well, they talked about the mighty works of God. So the tongues were for all the nations in different languages and speaking the mighty works of God. And what mighty works were they talking about? Well, just look at the book of Acts. You'll get the great work of God in creation and in providence. And then especially, you get the great work of God in redemption. And what about that work? Well, the incarnation, the perfect life of Jesus Christ. We'll see that in Peter's sermon. The cross work, the resurrection, the ascension, the return of Christ. This great redemptive work of God is what the church is given to declare by the power of the Spirit. And the church cannot adequately adequately announce this to the world apart from the power of the Spirit. Once again, the Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. What happens when you have the Spirit living in your life? Your life points to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Spirit in you. Now notice fifthly, not only was there wind, fire, filling, and tongues, but there was total amazement. Amazement. Look at these words, bewildered, amazed, and astonished, amazed, and perplexed. And what were they amazed about? Look at verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, and here is what they said. Are not all these people from Memphis? Are not these Southerners? down by the Mississippi River, and they're trying to tell people in Boston and New York and London and Paris and Munich and Rome, are are these not Galileans who are uneducated? These people who just 
live out there on the farm, have, are uncultured, uneducated? How in the world are they speaking our native language? The world is completely amazed at what happens to a man when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of him, really gets a hold of him. It's amazing what an ordinary man can do when the Spirit of God gets a hold of him. That's what's amazing. It's these crazy Galileans who are being used by God to proclaim the mighty works of God to a sophisticated crowd from all over the world. So the Holy Spirit has come. Now, we have to move very quickly. The Holy Spirit has come as promised. First of all, verses 12 through 14, the Spirit is not man's invention. Are these people drunk? What is the meaning of this? No, that's not it. You missed it. You know, like I said, if it weren't 9 o'clock in the morning, I could make an argument for that. Uh, But 9 o'clock in the morning, even these guys, I know they're not drunk. No, this is the work of the Spirit. B, the Spirit is God's gift, not man's invention. Now, notice what... Peter says, first of all, he is saying in verses 15 through 21. Now, remember, we're moving now from event to explanation. And here's the explanation. This event, Peter rises up to say, by the power of the Spirit, is what was promised in the Old Testament. It's what was promised in Joel. And you all have been reading that book all of our lives. In fact, we've been reading that book at Pentecost, the book of Joel. And I'm telling you, this is that. That's the first thing Peter did. He said, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Number one, it signals the last days. And in Joel, it does that. The coming of the Spirit signals the last days. And in the last days, and you say, well, what are the last days? Are we in the last days? Yes, we've been in the last days since Pentecost. Pentecost ushered in the last days. So the last days are between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. You're in the last days. And one of the signals of the last days is this powerful outpouring of the Spirit of God. Secondly, it's poured out on all. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And you notice that includes men and women. It includes the rich and the poor. In fact, Joel says, even upon my servants, I will pour out my Spirit. And how often is it that if you have ears to hear, the one who's the least educated in your business, the one who has the least income in your business, will come up and sidle up next to you if you've given him the freedom to talk to you, and he'll whisper wisdom into your ear when he knows God. It's amazing what the people around here whisper into my ear and tell me about the Lord. They're not preachers. They're not on our program staff. They're not even on our administrative staff because they know the Lord, and they have his spirit in their lives. He'll pour out his spirit on all. Thirdly, he will enable the proclamation. Enabling proclamation. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. So one of the great uh, confusions about the church today, the Protestant church, is, well, preaching is for the preachers, the ones who get paid for it. No, preaching is for everybody. And if someone's preaching to you, one of the purposes of that preaching is to help equip you to preach to make the proclamation in ordinary conversation, not using grand oratory or big gestures, but just in your conversation, in your daily work, being able to say something about the mighty works of God. That's what the Spirit does. He inspires vision, number four. Your young men shall see visions. Visions of what? Visions of the kingdom expanding around the world. When Paul was in northern Turkey and he wanted to keep going north, the Spirit stopped him and gave him a vision of Macedonia and said, we're, we've had enough of Asia, we're going to Europe and we're going to cross the Aegean Sea. And the vision was of a man in Macedonia over in Europe saying, come over and help us. And by that vision, Paul then went to Europe for the first time. And as we'll see later on in Acts chapter 16, had a powerful ministry there. So the Spirit inspires vision in us. When you have the Spirit, you should expect to be given vision for ministry. And then he warns of the end. And I will show wonders in the heaven above, and so on. So the world is now properly warned. We are in the last days. The Spirit has come. Let all of us turn to the Lord for his mercy. Now, thirdly, in verses 22 through 36, you see the next grand element of Peter's explanation. The first explanation is, this is what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Here's his second explanation. 
This is a result of the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. What you see in this powerful demonstration of the Spirit is Jesus Christ sending the promised gift of the Father. So Christ went to the throne, he intercedes for us, and with the Father pours out the Spirit. So the Spirit's presence is the sign, the marker, that Jesus Christ has arrived on his throne. That's what Peter is saying. So first of all, he says about Jesus, he was accredited by God to you. He was accredited by God. All of you know, you don't have to read the history books, you were here. And you saw the mighty deeds that he did. And the people in that day could not deny it. They knew it. Secondly, he said, we put him to death. Here's a man who's accredited by God to be his servant and his son. And we killed him. That causes a problem. Now, if you ever wonder about whether God is in control of history when it's very evil, here's the most evil event who ever happened, which ever happened in verse 23. And notice it was by the plan, the set purpose, and the foreknowledge, the decree of God. The most evil thing that ever occurred was included in God's decree. This is the justification for saying about anything. God is always in control regardless of what we see, and he has a purpose for it. Thirdly, God raised him from the dead because the bands of death could not hold him down. So Peter is, once again, still describing the exaltation of Christ. He came to the earth. He was accredited to you as a man of many signs and wonders. We killed him. God raised him. And fourthly, we see that God then exalted him on high. He not only raised him up from the dead, he raised him to the right hand of the Father. He's exalted. So don't forget the ascension. He is the resurrected and ascended Lord. And Peter makes that point over and over again. It's throughout the Acts, the sermons in the Acts. So you see, Peter is by the power of the Spirit proclaiming Christ. When the Spirit takes over your life, your life becomes about exalting Christ and not yourself. Then fourthly, the Holy Spirit has come to save sinners. So the Spirit has come to exalt Christ as the promised gift of the, Holy, of the Old Testament, and the Spirit has come to save sinners. First of all, verse 37, the Holy Spirit convicts. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see the Spirit at work? The Spirit is at work not only in giving us these dramatic signs of His presence, and the most dramatic sign of His presence is that Galileans are not drunk, but actually proclaiming Christ effectively internationally. Now there is a sign. And now you notice the Spirit not only is working through Peter and the 120 who were gathered that day, but now the Spirit begins to work on those who are listening. They are becoming convicted. Jesus said the Spirit convicts. He says that in, in his upper room discourse, John 14 through 16. He convicts the world. And the Spirit does that. So if you're sharing the gospel with someone, you not only pray, Holy Spirit, take hold of me, enable me to be a loving witness and a clear witness of Christ. But Holy Spirit, take hold of Him. I can't convince Him. You can't convince Him unless you change His heart. And that is how you convince. So you're depending upon the Spirit to take hold of that person. And here they say, brothers, what shall we do? Now, some have noted that the reason they asked that question was because of the phenomena that they were seeing. They knew that something divine was going on. The question that needs to be asked, what's the phenomena today? What causes people to ask, what shall we do? Well, let me tell you what this phenomenon is supposed to be. The phenomenon is supposed to be a spirit-filled church. A.W. Tozer said, you know, if the Holy Spirit withdrew himself from today's church, 90% of what we do would just go right on. But the church is meant to be a body of people who are empowered by the Spirit, and our life is distinguished by the Spirit, and it is the indispensable element of our lives, and anyone who really gets to know us can see it. And it's because of that they say, what should we do? Obviously, I don't have what you have. 
What shall I do? You've proclaimed to me a message. I've listened to it. And I see that it's real in your life. Tell me what I should do. So the Spirit convicts. Secondly, the Spirit converts. Peter says to them, here is what you do. Repent. And that includes belief. In the Bible, sometimes you get only repent. Sometimes you get only believe. Sometimes you get repent and believe. But they're both included. You can't repent without belief. And you can't believe without repentance. Peter says repent. That is to turn. Turn from your own self-service. Turn to the service and worship of God alone. Turn to Him. And then be baptized. That is, be included into the church. So you turn to God and then you turn to this body that He's building. You turn to the community of faith. You turn to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're included into it. Repent and be baptized. And you'll notice uh, then that He also says, thirdly, the Holy Spirit calls for the promises for you and your children, for all who are for all, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And notice, first of all, Peter mentions your children. Gentlemen, don't forget if you've got children, that's your first disciple. Those are the ones that God would call through you. These are the ones that you minister to, your family. And they need to be evangelized. They need to be discipled. If you're a grandfather, as your children give you access to your grandchildren. You take those grandchildren, disciple them, show them the life of Christ. Remember, this promise is for your children. Then notice, it's not only for your children, it's for people in North Memphis and South Memphis. It's for people in 38126 as well as 38117. It's for people everywhere. So you, of course you start with your children, but you don't end with your children. And the big mistake that so many men make is they all they can see in their Christian experience is just providing for their children. Gentlemen, if you are full of the Spirit, you're providing for the world, for all those who are far off and who have never heard the Word, those who are under-resourced and marginalized and are not having the benefits of the gospel in their life. Now, of course you start with your home, but it goes everywhere. And then you'll notice the conclusion of the matter, and I've got 60 seconds. There's a tremendous in gathering that day, you'll notice that 3,000, 3,000 joined the church that day. And later on, I'll give you a list of verses. Throughout Acts, you have 3,000 here, you have 5,000 in a couple more chapters. And then over and over again, you get the refrain that many were added that day. Many were added that day. Many were added that day. This is the life of the Spirit. It's irresistible. And that's the reason that people from nations all over the world have been bowing down before God and saying, Holy Spirit, come and fill my life. Because it is what it means to be a real human being, is to be in this kind of intimate fellowship with the living God. Praise God for the day of Pentecost. And that day continues today and every day until we see the one face to face who sent us the Spirit. And there we will fulfill the work of the Spirit for the entire day of eternity as we worship and praise Him. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this great gift, the unspeakable gift of Christ and the unspeakable gift of Your Spirit. We pray that You will enable us to appropriate these gifts that we may live the life You want us to live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all.